Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. To a day. <laughs> to, to a, a day. day. But how strange life is and how marvelous sometimes. Marvelous indeed. Welcome back to Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, the Max original series inspired by the life of Julia Child. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, and I'm the founder of Cherry Bomb Magazine and the Radio Cherry Bomb Podcast, where I report on some of the most interesting women in the world of food, including trailblazers just like Julia. I haven't seen your show, Mrs. Child, but the briefing book suggests that America trusts you. Trust is the key to diplomacy. <laughs> Shall we get on with it? After each episode, I'm dishing with creatives from the show, as well as special guests, to give us a little perspective and food for thought. Today, we're talking about the second to last episode of the series. I can't believe it. Julia showrunner Chris Kaiser, who wrote the episode, is here to tell us all about it. And I also chat with Alex Prudhomme, author of Dinner with the President, Food, Politics, and a History of Breaking Bread at the White House. Alex is also Julia's grandnephew, so we will have a lot to discuss. Before we go any further, we are about to stir up a whole pot of spoilers. If you haven't watched the latest episode, check it out, then come on back. Everyone else, here we go. Biggest day of our lives. It is. Okay, <laughs> let's do this. Episode 7 kicks off with the WGBH gang heading to Washington, D.C. to film a special on the White House State Dinner for the Japanese Prime Minister. This is based on an actual special Julia worked on, titled White House Red Carpet. Simka is less than enthused to hear about Julia's brush with world leaders. Avis tries to tag along, but didn't pass her security clearance because of her anti-war efforts. The message is delivered by the no-nonsense White House Chief of Protocol, Gretchen Fletcher, played by Hannah Einbinder, who some of you know and love from the show Hacks. Upon returning home, Avis discovers Stanley is sleeping with one of his students. Stanley. Who are you? Well, one of you must know who she is. I am a student of Professor Lipschitz. Cum laude. Sweetheart, how laude is irrelevant. Judith, despite her frequent battles with Blanche, reminds everyone of the contributions her mentor has made to the publishing world. Back at the White House, Julia brushes elbows with the brusque White House chef, Henry Haller played by Patrick Breen. You wanted to film Chef Haller. I permitted you to film Chef Haller. Chef Haller has allowed you to taste his food. He has watched you touch his knives. Chef Haller has smiled at the camera for two days. He has put up with you long enough. Now go and let Chef Haller do his job. 
To her surprise, Julia is not allowed to attend the White House dinner, nor are she and Alice fed. The real-life personal chef to President Johnson, Zephyr Wright, played by Deidre Henry, saves the day with some shrimp and grits. In real life, Zephyr shared with President Johnson her experiences living under the Jim Crow laws in the South and is said to have influenced his thinking about civil rights. In fact, she was present when he signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Back on the show, Zephyr and Alice have a heartfelt conversation at the bus stop outside the White House. You found a wonderful way to make your voice heard. So have I. You speak loudly, and I whisper. I wish I'd had the kind of path that you had. I did what I could, and I got lucky. Food gave me a voice, just like with you and Julia. Now, let's talk with our first guest, Julia showrunner Chris Kaiser, who wrote this episode. We tell stories. More important, we decide which stories get told. The ones we do not choose are, over time, forgotten, which means we have a very consequential job to decide what is remembered. Chris, welcome back to Dishing on Julia. Thanks, Carrie. It's nice to be back. It's been a long time. I cannot believe season two is almost over. We've got one more episode to go. I want to share something Janae Lamarck said. She's one of Julia's directors. Your first season is all about finding the show. So if that's true, what was season two about for you? Well, you know, at some point, then the show sort of tells you what it's going to be about it, you know, it, as you get it going. And yes, it was, the first season of Julia was about the first season of a television show. The second season is about a second season of a television show. But we knew from the end of season one that Julia and the characters who surrounded her had all kinds of challenges ahead of them. If people remember at the end of the first season, Julia is coming to terms with what it means, what she does, and is it worth doing again? She decides that it is, but inevitably what happens to everybody is that there's no possibility of staying in place, right? Things change. Julia's success in itself changes everything. It changes things for her and for her marriage and for the station on which, you know, which she broadcasts. It changes things for everyone around her. I should say this also, it takes place in the context of the mid-60s in America. It's after the Kennedy assassination, the beginning of that time in the 60s, not quite fully in the middle of it, when America itself really began to change in big ways. And we'd always committed that the show, though it wasn't specifically a historical drama, would at least take account of the cultural trends that Julia was a part of. So everyone gets to this point in the story and they can't stand in place because standing in place is taking a side. You can't be neutral. So this entire season is about how each of these characters, Julia at the heart of it, but Julia and Paul secondarily, and then everyone else deals with change in their life. And are they for it or against it? Are they standing up against it? Or are they moving with it? And it turns out not to be a very easy question to answer because change comes with complications. And Julia, you know, I think one of the things that we wanted to do was we wanted to play into the to the contradictions of Julia, that she was both on the forefront of certain cultural movements, but also a project of where she came from. And she changed her mind a lot. And she speaks on both sides of many issues. This is a journey for Julia through the middle of the 60s and this period where she'd become a kind of cultural icon and has decisions to make as to whether she's going to be an advocate for or an opponent of change, whether as we deal with in the very beginning of the season in terms of food, whether she stands for innovation or for a more conservative approach to life. And 
Let me talk forever about how that plays out in each character's storyline. But that's the idea. The whole season is about that. And it's constructed around that. And it begins and ends on that question. And Julia changes over the course of it, learns some things, very importantly, learns some stuff in episode seven, though it's not obviously our attempt to be teaching people things, but you do it by osmosis. What would you say Julia learns? I think Julia learns that she needs to be an active agent for change as opposed to a passive observer of that. And sometimes a holder onto of old ideas. When she begins the season, you said in France, in conflict with Simca, embracing the idea of new cooking and newness in general. Those early episodes are all about kind of looking back toward World War II, where in the years after World War II, when that whole group of people started in Europe together, and whether they look toward the future with hope or with a little anxiety about the loss of things that define their lives. Julia stands at that point for entirely a forward-looking point of view. But she finds herself, in particular in the season, in conflict with her director, Elaine, and not necessarily always being an, an advocate for women, not necessarily being opposed to women in general, but not being a particular advocate for women in this season until we get to the end. And this is true of Julia Stoddard. In the end, she, you know, she's a spokesperson for Planned Parenthood, but she doesn't begin there. So this is a subtle metaphorical way of dealing with this question for Julia of how does she, how does she move into that position of embracing all of the changes that she herself was one of the catalysts for. I want to talk about some of the locations before we talk some more specifics about this episode. You've taken Julia to some pretty incredible places in season two. I was curious what you're saying about her world with the various settings. She's been the Provence, Paris, now the White House. Well, two things. First of all, Julia was a person of the world. You know, Julia and Paul were incredible world travelers. They did more of that early in their life even than they did later. In fact, the show makes a very particular point in season one, episode one, of how their lives kind of become much smaller in a small house in Cambridge. But the truth is they were always people of the world and absorbing influences and affecting things across the globe. We wanted to reflect that. But it's also true that you do a television show, and over the course of time, you want to expand its horizon. So it was really important for us to say, although Julia exists mostly in her small home in Cambridge in season one, though we do see her go to San Francisco and New York, in season two, as her fame increases, she returns to the places that were her roots in France, and she begins to influence the world in a broader way. She goes to Washington, D.C. It's both a truth about her past. She's a person of many parts and not provincial, and true about her growth as a person in the world, as she becomes truly a child television personality, that she extends beyond Cambridge. Paul talks about that a lot. She says, you're not just mine, now you're Cambridge's, now you're the world. He talks about her reach, and we wanted that reach to be reflected visually in some sense, that was the scope of the story. How did the idea come about to center this episode around Julia's actual White House TV special? In the list of things that we knew we wanted to do even before the show began, when we were beginning to pitch it, one of those things was Julia's visit to the White House. It's you know the idea that she's the first person to be able to do that, and a woman, and it's centered around a state dinner. We just knew that that was going to be a focus of an episode. As we moved into the second season and began to arc out that story, of the season, the way in which Julia begins 
in France, comes home, has to deal with her fame, the questions of the 60s that get raised, the beginnings of the civil rights movement, beginnings, I guess, but the you know, moving into that period where the civil rights movement just becomes so much a part of the life of Americans, the women's movement, all of that stuff. It became clear where the episode would go and what its purpose would be and how it would slide toward the end of the season. And Julia's, the central truth that we took out of uh, Alex Brazome's The French Chef in America was that Julia was disappointed in how she was treated at the White House. And you'll see this reflected in the episode in a couple of ways of women behind the scenes and women not necessarily getting the full credit they deserve, although Julia obviously as a person tends to get a lot of credit. But interestingly, in this episode, feels as if, and rightly feels as if she's poorly treated, was clear for us as kind of the tipping point for her. We just, we loved setting it there and what it meant afterwards. And it gets more complicated than that, but that's really the process. We knew we were going to do it. We had a feeling we were going to do it in the second season. We got together. Daniel and I always talk about the themes of the season first. We knew what that theme was. We brought it back to the writing staff. We all sat and talked about what the structure of the season would be. And it shifted toward the second half of the season and landed in episode seven as a kind of meaningful turning point. It is you know, a highlight of her life. I should say, by the way, we moved it way up in her life. I mean, it, it actually happened in 1967. We set it in 1964, still in the Johnson administration, still with the Japanese prime minister. But we moved it for our own purposes to tell the story that we wanted to tell. I also love what it says about ambition, because in the show, it's Alice's idea. Alice places some calls to the White House. In real life, it's it was Julia and Paul doing this, but it's such a great leap forward from a cooking show in the 60s to actually going to the White House and doing a documentary. That's exactly right. For us, Alice, the fictionalized character who represents real people who lived at the time, a kind of composite, this is a moment for her where she says, I can do something and make it happen. She does it in the context, by the way, without giving too much away, of the feeling the risk that Julia might leave the station. The world that GBH opens up to Julia doesn't isn't quite big enough. So Alice is intentionally looking to expand Julia's world as a kind of, you know, enticement to stay. That's not actually what happened, but there is a truth to all of that. Is that the life that these people lead is some kind of combination, some conflict between who they are and what they wish to become, and every time they they achieve some of their wishes that changes things in ways they don't understand or couldn't have contemplated. And it's both good and bad. Chris, can we talk about Deidre Henry for a minute? She plays Zephyr. What made her right for this role? Well, I mean, first of all, I have to say that when we get introduced to these people, it's because of the fact that we have Sharon Bialy and Galar Gizazian, who are casting directors who are incredible. So they introduced us to Deidre. And you know, there are some people where you watch them on their tapes and you just say, well, I don't need to see anybody else. And it's hard to explain. The truth is there is an essence to the parts that you write or the way you think about people. And somebody comes into a room and for reasons you don't, can't put words to, they just seem to embody that. And she had a kind of quiet, you know, I don't want to say majesty, but there's something, there's something so quietly powerful about her. And both probably about Deidre herself, who I guess know a little bit and she was wonderful, but also the way she played Zephyr, that just felt perfect and beautiful. And so to be honest, we just cast her and then said, go. And she just she just did the part. I mean, Janae had conversations with her, but 
you know, she had her own history and she talked about why this mattered to her in a way. Not that that's you cast somebody because they say they want the part because their history matters, you know, it makes it matter to them more. But I think the fact that she understood it in a way that was very personal was relevant to the how well she achieved what, we, what she was looking to do. Anyway, she was just great. I loved I loved working with her so much. I love the scene between her and Alice outside at the bus stop. As the writer, how did you approach that scene? Scenes have their own inherent power. And you get to 15 episodes into a series and the end of the second season and everything the characters have experienced and the coincidences of whom they meet leads you to these moments that have layers to them and emotions that you can't, you can't concoct. We knew that we were going to, remember we were in the writer's room, we were talking about this and we knew we were going to have that conversation. We came to the idea of having the conversation between Alice and Zephyr and the facts of it, Zephyr's story coming out and Alice's response to it, they just had their own weight. And so I don't mean you just step out of the way and let it go, but in some ways you, you do that, right? You try not to overwrite it and just let the actors play that. So it's a pretty simple scene. And they're incredibly beautiful in it, both of them. It, it's one of my favorite scenes also. I have, I have some other scenes in the episode that are, that are way up there. But I think that's a reflection also of just where they come. You know, but as you said, Janae says in season one, you build and then you reap what you've built, right? You have all this like potential energy that suddenly becomes the story energy that becomes real as you get further and further in. You have to deal with the burdens of having told a lot of the story and having to make sure the new stuff is just as exciting. But the huge benefit of the emotional weight of having known these people for longer, obviously not true for Zephyr, but definitely true for Alice. And the beauty of that scene is obviously in Zephyr's story, but I think very much in the way Brittany listens as Alice to the story and the way she talks about her own experience in relation to it. It's seeing it in part through Alice's eyes that gives it the weight that it has. And that's that's Brittany. Do you remember anything from the set that evening? Yes, it was very, very cold. It was extremely cold. That's what I remember. I mean, it's a very simple scene, right? They walk and then they sit down and Janae shot it very simply, although that stuff with the bus is really beautiful that she does. And so it was just, you know, it was just the actors and in very cold weather. But it was great. I, I remember it as much in the editing room because you get to the editing room and you think, do I have choices I have to make? But they weren't really there. It was probably the easiest scene in the episode to edit together. I loved having the chance to write and be part of that scene. I think Daniel and I both did. Chris, you mentioned that you have some other favorite scenes. Can you share them? Yes. Well, obviously the final scene between Julia and Paul. But I also really love when Blanche finally gets her say, the way Judith Light plays that and the way Fiona, who plays Judith Jones, reacts to that. I find that scene very moving. It's a parallel kind of scene about women saying, a woman saying, this is the part I played in all of this. So that's one of my favorite moments in the show. When you are working on the script, do you find yourself talking to Julia? First of all, I know this is strange. I feel more like I do that with Sarah and, and David and those people. I mean, I think they have, at this point, Sarah's Julia is Julia for the show. I mean, the real Julia is real and we do the research. And But for me, I'm listening to their voices in my head. I'm saying it out loud and I hear them and I hear Fiona and Brittany and Fran. And I trust that that is Julia and Paul 
but it's Julia and Paul as played by the people who are playing in the show. So that's the truth of it. I don't go back an extra step and do that. I do it because that's who I'm writing for. Well, you have the most magical actors, so I'm not surprised to hear that. Yes, we do. We really do. We didn't talk about Paul that much. You decide to leave Paul back home in this instance, and we're so used to seeing them as a couple, as a pair. Why did you split them up in this case? Well, a couple of things. First of all, they are a pair at the end, and so it's in a very meaningful way. The end of the episode is very much about their pairedness. But that argument that they were a team, you know, you can't just keep playing that over and over again, if you know what I mean, as you're writing it. Like, so that's only one side, which is there's just some obligation to find interesting ways of talking about the ways in which they're a team, whereas under pressure. But simply watching them work together, I think in and of itself is not enough to maintain the interest of an audience in the story. So that's that's one thing. The other thing is that we had a very particular purpose for all of this, and we're also playing game. How so? Because it's an episode in which all the women are undervalued for what they do. Paul stays home and is incredibly valued over and over again. Every time Julia talks about Paul, you cut back to Paul, and he's just the most important person in everyone's life. He's just a remarkable man. I mean, this is not to take anything away from him, and it is not, in the end, interestingly, the point of the story either. But it is interesting that at the same time as Blanche and Zephyr and Julia have to fight for somebody to say, thank you, you've done a wonderful thing. Everyone is thanking Paul all the way through. Why is that? It's a reflection of obviously who he is and how remarkable he is. But Paul's story is a different path from Julia's in season two. It's connected and sometimes intimately connected and connected at the end. But the questions Paul has to ask in season two are about who he is taking stock of his own life and what he's done and what he will do in the future, you know, what his legacy is and how he defines himself. That's a big question to ask. And it becomes the very heart in some ways. It puts everyone at risk and becomes the heart of the final episode of the season. But in order to create some tension with that, episode seven is about Paul's satisfaction with the way he's defined himself in the present, which is no small thing now that he's living in the shadow of a very, very famous woman. I mean, he talks about that a lot in the first season. We're not at the point where he has to understand it completely himself, but the rest of his life, he's going to be the less well-known member of the couple of Julia and Paul Child. And what does that mean? What is his value? And how does it relate to what he's accomplished in the past? So the episode is about big things for Paul. But then it becomes something else. And then it turns on its head and becomes about things that, and without giving away episode eight, but a reason to watch it is it has a kind of cliffhanger, which we never do really, or almost never do, as to who Paul was, who Julia and Paul were, what implications that have for their future. We've laid the groundwork for that already in the, in the season, but that becomes the preactive story in episode eight. So we had lots of stuff for Paul, but it needed to be away from Julia. It couldn't happen if they were always together and talking all the time, and he was simply there supporting her. It required him to be the agent of change or happiness in his own life. Chris, is there anything we should be paying special attention to in the final episode? Any Easter well, eggs, anything you dropped in well, there? Well, I, I think, Jay, watch episode seven. You have hints about what's going to happen and all of that. Things matter. I mean, the fact that Julia shot an episode at the White House, which is a little bit of a piece of propaganda for democracy and the meaning of America, plays out in episode eight, and certainly how Paul feels about himself, now Julia feels about herself, and the questions of change, and the ways in which Julia has changed GBH herself, and is either a reflection of that or 
some ways destructive of everything else that's going. I mean, all of that stuff gets played out in this episode. But if you watch episode seven, you'll understand the risks that exist in episode eight. And they're played for comedy a little bit there. I'm a little sad because, you know, making a television season is like, you know, it's like cooking Thanksgiving dinner. You know, it takes you forever and then people eat it in an hour. And that's what it feels like. All right. Well, we have one last question. This is a fun one. And you know this question. Julia is coming over for dinner. What do you serve? I think you had her over for dinner last season. So something new this season. Yeah. You know, she's been over a bunch now. (laughs) And so I was actually thinking that I wouldn't cook her anything. It's okay. I was thinking we'd go out. I was thinking because she loves Chinese food and I love Chinese food, I would take her to my favorite Chinese restaurant or she could take me to her favorite Chinese restaurant. And I just want to hear her perspective on Chinese cooking for the first time. And who knows if we keep going, whether we get to explore the ways in which Julia and Judith were influential in the ways in which our our palate expanded in this country. But, you know, I cook for a bunch now. Not just the time you asked me, but it turns out a couple of times she's come over. And the last time I think I made her our, you know, cooking from our Jewish heritage. So I just thought maybe this time we'll go have dumplings and other things and she can talk to me about why she loves Chinese food and I can talk about why I love Chinese food and we'll share that. I hope she's okay with that. Chris, thank you so much. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our next guest is Alex Prudhomme, author of Dinner with the President, co-author of Julia's memoir, My Life in France, and Julia's grandnephew. At tomorrow's dinner with the Prime Minister, nothing will be decided, and no business will get done, and yet because of it, these two men who carry the weight of the world on their shoulders will begin to trust each other. And so the next day, it will be easier to reach agreements that make the world better and safer. Just because they broke bread together. Exactly. Alex Prudhomme, welcome back to Dishing on Julia. Thanks, Carrie. So great to be here. I'm so excited to talk about the White House episode of the show with you because your most recent book is titled Dinner with the President, Food, Politics, and a History of Breaking Bread at the White House. Tell me how the book came about. Well, I grew up in a family of foodies, not only Julia, who is my great aunt, but my grandmother, my mother, my aunts, and my uncles. We all like to cook, and we like to sit around the table and talk about politics or argue about history. That's the backstory. I worked with Julia on her memoir, My Life in France, in which I learned that she had spent more time at the White House than any of us realized. Most particularly, she had done two TV documentaries about state dinners. And I'm one of those Americans who had heard of state dinners, but I didn't really know what they were about. And I, I'm kind of a history nerd. And so I kind of dug in like, wow, that's really interesting. It's a huge phenomenon. 
And then in 2016, I had a book out called The Ripple Effect, which is all about fresh water. And I was invited to the White House to give a talk to mid-level staff in the Obama administration. And I had a friend there, and he invited me to lunch at the Navy Mess, which is the world's most unusual cafeteria. It's on the ground floor of the White House next to the Situation Room. And afterward, he said, well, you know, the Obamas are off in Martha's Vineyard. Let's go for a quick tour. I was like, okay. So we whipped around the White House. Uh, there was no one there. We basically had it to ourselves. I had this strangest reaction, which I was just not ready for. It was an emotional reaction to being in that building where I could almost palpably feel the history coming out of the floors and the walls and seeing the portraits on the wall and the busts really brought history alive. And I was able to peek into the Oval Office and I went through the state dining room. I saw the kitchen at work and I didn't realize it at the time, but I think that was the moment when the seed for the book was planted. And it took me another two years to get around to starting on it in 2018. And I began to wonder at that point, what would the narrative arc from George Washington and his troops starving at Valley Forge in the winter of 1777, all the way up through the days when squirrel stew and roasted possum were considered haute cuisine to uh, space age Sanka and Tang to modern kale, taco bowls and performance enhancing ice cream. What would that narrative arc tell us about the presidents as humans and the first ladies but also the state of the nation, the modernization and mechanization of American food, and ultimately about ourselves. And I thought, well, this would make a good article, but the more I looked at it, I thought, wow, this is a book. And so then I was off and running. What can you tell us about the work it took to make Julia special come to life? It was a huge amount of work. When I was researching my various books, I found the correspondence between Julia and Paul and their team, including Ruthie Lockwood, who was the original producer, who now Alice Naiman is a stand-in for. The interesting thing to me was that Paul was a cultural attache. He was a diplomat at the U.S. Embassy in Paris, and Julia was a diplomatic spouse. So she understood the diplomatic value of a state dinner, but of course, they were also great gourmets, and they understood the culinary value of a state dinner, which is a chance to show off the best of American cookery, ingredients, wine, and entertainment. So that, that was very unusual for an American couple to have that kind of insight. And perhaps no one else was in the position that they were to actually make this happen. It wasn't easy, though, because this was 1967, which was a really tough year for Johnson. Tell us some of the reasons why. The Vietnam War was going badly. There were protests in the streets against the war, but also for feminism and for environmentalism. There were racial riots. Uh, there was a lot going on. And Johnson had kind of retreated into a bunker mentality and wasn't really getting out in public or talking to the press much. But as Paul would say that Julia could charm a polecat. And as she proved many times with French waiters and, and chefs getting the recipes out of them uh, by being charming. And so she could charm the mercurial Texan, Lyndon Johnson and his wife, Lady Bird Johnson. Lo and behold, they allowed the child and a very small crew from WGBH to come into the White House kitchen for the first time ever and film the making of a state dinner from behind the scenes. So not only do they show in their documentary the kitchen, but also the back halls. They talked to State Department officials. They talked to the social secretary. It was a really interesting documentary. It's all shot on real film in black and white. You can see it on pbs.org. I highly recommend it because it's entertaining. Julia's wearing a mod wig. This is 67 after all, and a groovy coat. And she's just thrilled to be at the White House. You can definitely see that on her face. 
she was a history nerd, kind of like me. And she just was elated to be able to, as she said, show a side of the people's house that most of the people had never seen. And it was mission accomplished, it was a very impactful show. It highlighted the diplomacy that we go through that most people are unaware of. It also highlighted the wonderful food of the White House, and it confirmed the American public's interest in what happens behind the scenes in the president's life. It was sort of a cultural phenomenon, and it was filmed in 1967. It actually aired in 1968, in the spring of 68. It really struck a nerve with the public. And Julia at the time was one of the most famous women in America. Is that That's fair true. to say? Yeah, yeah. By 1967, she had won her first Peabody, her first Emmy Award. She'd been on the cover of Time magazine. Everybody was watching Julia, even people who didn't like to cook. And she had really arrived. And she enjoyed being a celebrity, but she didn't take it all that seriously. She took her food very seriously and her teaching. She thought of herself as a teacher more than a celebrity. Was she able to enjoy her fame? She did enjoy all the fun and being able to go to places like the White House that the rest of us can't go and act as an avatar for the public. You know, one of her defining traits in real life was that she was so inquisitive, always asking questions. Uh, and it was genuine. I mean, I've seen her talk to so many different kinds of people and it's always the same. She wants to know their story. How did they get here? What are their dreams? Who is their family? What is their name? And, you know, this can be a dishwasher in a kitchen. It can be somebody from the White House. And, and it was truly genuine. What can you tell us about Zephyr Wright? We're introduced to her later in the episode. Zephyr isn't well known, but she's important to American history. She is. She's somebody I discovered in working on dinner with the president. She was the Johnson's personal chef which is different from the executive chef. So the White House executive chef at that time was Henry Holler. In real life, served for five presidents. He was the longest tenured executive chef there, very skilled, a Swiss, French-trained, classic, accomplished chef who could have made a lot of money at a three-star restaurant, but really liked working at the White House. Zephyr Wright, by contrast, was a black woman from Texas who had cooked for the Johnson family in Texas at the ranch. And when Johnson went to the White House, they brought Zephyr Wright as their quote unquote personal chef. This is something that many presidents do. There's a kitchen in the private quarters on the second floor of the White House, and they very often have a personal chef. Some people think of Sam Cass, for example, who I think you know, who uh, was the personal chef for the Obamas. He later took on a policy role and actually helped to formulate food policy, and he was instrumental in Michelle Obama's White House garden. But Zephyr Wright made good home cooking, and they really liked that. And that comes through in the episode, too. And the episode is, is entitled Shrimp and Grits because it is a dish that she serves Julia and Alice, which is a wonderful moment in this particular episode. She played an important role, which was that when the Johnsons went to their ranch in Texas, they would fly, and Zephyr and her husband, Sammy, would have to drive across country. They, they suffered from America's racism in those days. They weren't allowed to stay in certain hotels. They weren't allowed to eat in certain restaurants. They couldn't even use the restrooms, so they had to go out in the bushes. And at one point, Johnson says, well, we're going west. Zephyr said, no, Mr. President, we're not going to do it this time. And he said, what do you mean? And she explained how difficult it was for them and, and how humiliating it was. And then she refused to go. He didn't say anything. He just left the room. And then a couple of months later, he signed the Civil Rights Act into legislation. And that was really important. 
And she was invited to that ceremony. And after he signed the Civil Rights Act, he actually handed her the pen and said, you deserve this more than anyone. She had pricked his conscience and made him really think about the importance of civil rights. That also comes through in the episode. Julia had so many interesting moments in her life. Why do you think the creators of the show chose the White House special to frame an episode around? I think there are a number of reasons. First of all, it shows Julia's progress. By that point, she had become our first true celebrity television chef. And so without even having to say that, just the fact that she was invited to the White House to do this TV special kind of says that. Second of all, they were able to work in these themes of power dynamics, meaning men versus men, men versus women, women versus women, black and white, the public and the private. There was so much going on here. And so they use that scene, I think quite brilliantly, as a way of addressing half a dozen issues in one sort of distilled way. And so while Julia and Alice are in Washington dining with the president, Simka is calling from France and becomes jealous that Julia's had yet another win and is at the White House while she's stuck at home and she's run out of wine and she's feeling very sorry for herself. And Paul kind of talks her down a bit. And Paul, being the diplomat that he is, is at home. He's mollifying Avis DeVoto. He's mollifying Hunter Fox and his wife and kind of diplomatically getting them back together through the vehicle of pizza, which I thought was lovely. So it contrasts perception and reality as well. So Simka's and Paul's perception is that Julia's down there having the time of her life with the president. The reality is she and Alice are stuck in a back room and not allowed to taste the food or do anything, while Paul is actually sort of the secret hero of this particular episode as he is diplomatically patching things up with various people. Julia did a second White House special for the visit of Queen Elizabeth in 1976. Gerald Ford was president. How did that differ from Julia's first White House special? It was vastly different. And this is another one of my favorite stories. It was 1976, it was the bicentennial. So this was an extra special moment. Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip come over. This is the first time royals had come in many, many years. So they had meticulously planned this dinner down to the last minute. It was held under a tent in the Rose Garden there was beautiful flower decorations, elaborate silverware. I mean, they'd really gone for it. The context is that Gerald Ford was running for re-election. You remember he did not get elected the first time around. He inherited the presidency from Nixon. So this was his first election, really. He was up against Jimmy Carter, who was surging at that point. This is July of 76. Gerald Ford kind of pandered a bit to the crowd here. So they, they meticulously plan this thing down to the minute. And then right before the dinner is going to start, a terrible storm whips off the Potomac River, drenches everybody, turns the lawn into a mud pit, knocks the TV lights down, gets Julia's dress wet. <laughs> they all kind of have to regroup. Julia changes her dress. They go back. This time, the show is shot in color. It's for the BBC. So she's with British presenters, including people who've been on Upstairs, Downstairs. And yet again, though, they are stuck in a back room, kind of like it's depicted in, in the TV series, looking at a little tiny TV monitor, not getting any taste of the food or even a drink of wine. They, they're served warm Coke, I think. But she has a wonderful time with Chef Holler, who's still the chef there. He does this beautiful lobster dish and a veal dish. And you see Julia cooing over it all. And there's a picture in the book of her 
in bare feet because she was six foot two and Holler was a little more vertically challenged than she was. <laughs> Despite this beautiful meal and the importance of the event, everything kind of remained a little damp. The first thing that happens is Bob Hope's jokes kind of fall flat. Then when the queen and the president are dancing, the Marine band inadvertently strike up, the lady is a tramp. Yikes, that's no good. The kicker for me is that the entertainment that night, and this is the pandering part, was the captain and Tennille warbling about muskrat love, which Julia deemed not very queenly. Uh, <laughs> and yet at the end of the day, she and her producer, Ruthie Lockwood, were very happy to be at the White House with the queen uh, and the prince for this very important gastro-diplomatic moment. And she said, we felt like two lucky girls. It was symbolically important. It was culinarily important. And despite all the, the gaffes and the faux pas, it was a great moment. Let's switch topics and talk about your grandfather, Charlie Child, to whom we were introduced earlier this season. Well, Charlie and Paul Child were twin brothers, fraternal twins. Charlie was born slightly earlier than Paul. And part of my job as a consulting producer on the show was to coach David Hyde Pierce on playing both Charlie and Paul and, and how they were different. And I, I thought he did a great job. Charlie was sort of the alpha male. Paul was more the beta, but they were both artists. Paul was a photographer as well as a painter and a jeweler and a woodworker. Charlie was a really just a painter and mostly a portrait painter, but he was, they were both wonderful painters, had very different styles. Did they have a bit of an antagonistic relationship? Yes, it was, there was a slight rivalrousness there, a slight tension. And it's interesting that Charlie's wife, Frederica, who we called Freddie, was like Paul, a quieter person, also a very good cook, I'll say. And so you have this interesting, the twin. So one twin is more bold and outspoken, and he's married to a woman who's quieter. And then you have Julia, who's bold and outspoken, and she's married to Paul, who's quieter. And so they have this interesting quadrangle going here of, of these different personality types. And it was always a subject of conversation in the family about how the dynamic worked. And it evolved, it changed. I think, of course, Charlie and Julia were very fond of each other. And Freddie and Julia, they called each other ma soeur, my sister, and they joked about opening a restaurant called Mrs. Child and Mrs. Child, which they never got around to, but they really loved each other. And of course, Paul and Charlie were twins, and so they had a, their own rivalry. It wasn't love-hate, it was love-tension between the two of them. And so I think that the makers of the show really brought that tension out in, in just a few brief scenes. How well did you know your grandfather? Very well, very well. They lived in Pennsylvania. When Paul and Julia were living in Paris, they would write back and forth every week in these letters. And that was one of the great resources that I had as a writer in creating Julia's memoir in her voice. And we used a lot of Paul's letters because he was a wonderful writer. And Charlie was also a wonderful writer. And so to have this information between the two of them was a writer's dream, really. And then knowing the people, I could kind of fill in their voices. Where do you get your love of history from? Probably... Well, from all sides of the family, but my dad was a history buff. He was a history major, as was I. But, you know, I was lucky because we had members of the family, including Paul and Julia, who were diplomats or civil servants during the Second World War. Paul and Julia met in the OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA. They met down in Sri Lanka. Meanwhile, Charlie and Freddie were in Washington, D.C., and knew a lot of the very important people there. I had various uncles in the CIA and in other departments. And so I grew up with this interesting 
milieu. It was only natural for me to pursue history because I had seen it lived in my family. And I think you confirmed this for us in season one, but Julia was not a spy, as some have said, correct? Julia was a clerk typist. She sometimes, you know, would winkingly say, oh, yes, I was a spy. But no, she wasn't. She was a six foot two woman with blue eyes. I don't think she would have passed as a Japanese soldier. And she worked with Wild Bill Donovan, the guy who was the head of the OSS. And Paul played a very important role as an artist. He created maps and secret war rooms for the generals, which were key to helping to defeat the Japanese. Yeah, Julia with that voice could never have been a spy. No. Unless it was like hiding in plain sight kind of but spy. But she did learn a lot of spycraft, which they also allude to in the series. When she was developing her recipes in Paris and sending them to her sister and friends in America to try, she would write, top secret, for your eyes only. And she meant it, you know. She didn't want anybody to figure out what she was doing. How ambitious was Julia? She was quietly ambitious. She was ambitious for her cooking and her teaching. But don't forget that this documentary, White House Red Carpet, was a joint effort between she and Paul, very much so, much more so than the French chef. I mean, he was a former diplomat, so he really helped to make this thing happen. Even though he coached her behind the scenes at the French chef, that was really out of her teaching and writing and, and learning at the Cordon Bleu under Max Bunyard. And, and he was very supportive, and he, she could not have done that were it not for him. However, White House Red Carpet was really this joint effort, along with the staff at WGBH, and of course the White House. So it was a group thing, and she did not shy from getting up in front of the classroom and, and being the leader up there, but she wasn't outwardly ambitious. It was She was such a nuanced person. You know, it's really hard to pin her down because she was kind of full of contradictions. She's somebody who loved to perform, and she liked being a celebrity, but she always felt that it didn't really define her. And you know, one of my favorite stories was uh, she insisted on carrying her own suitcase through the airport and she would wait in line like everybody else and they would try to move her forward. She's like, no, no, I'm staying. I'm, you know, and she really thought of herself as a, a normal person, as it were. And even when the Smithsonian asked her to donate her kitchen, she said, well, now why would they want that? You know, and that was a genuine response. It wasn't a put on. She really had this great self-confidence with modesty. All right, Alex, last question. We usually ask what you would make Julia if she were coming to dinner, but you had many a dinner with Julia, so we're going to switch the question around a little bit and go back to the state dinners. Which state dinner in history would you bring her to? I think if I had to pick one, it would be the very first state dinner for a foreign head of state, and that was in 1874 when President Ulysses S. Grant and his wife Julia hosted King Kalakaua of the Sandwich Islands, now known as Hawaii. And they set the pattern for what a state dinner should be. And I think Julia would have loved that. She would have also loved the meal, this 30-odd course meal prepared by Chef Valentino Mela. And to see the beginning of history, I mean, I just think that that would be really cool because the state dinner remains relevant today and in the 21st century because really what it's about is about bringing human beings together whether the human beings are the staff members or the two state leaders, the president and his guest of honor, and how important that human connection is. I would argue even more so now in the internet age. People keep wondering if the state dinner has now gone the way of the dodo. And I say, no, it's the opposite. It's more important. It's akin to people wanting to have more physical experiences these days because we spend all the time in this virtual world. And yet the human brain and body crave experience. So getting these two leaders together is crucial for 
developing a rapport, which can lead to detente. It leads to a friendship more than just a relationship. They become more than cardboard cutouts of their stand-ins for their nations. They become real individuals. And that, as Nancy Reagan would say, you could get a lot of work done at these dinners. And she was right. It was really important to get these leaders together. And so it is worth all the time and money and effort to, to put these things on. And they're, in fact, a very good investment. Dinners and diplomacy. That's it. Thank you to Chris Kaiser and Alex Prudhomme for joining us on Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, now streaming on Max. Dishing on Julia is produced by the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Special thanks to Stephen Toll and the team at CityVox. Our executive producers are Catherine Baker and Yasmin Nesbat. Our associate producer is Jenna Sadu. And our editorial assistant is London Crenshaw. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. We'd love for you to leave a rating and review for Dishing on Julia on your favorite podcast platform, and be sure to subscribe. When you leave your review, tell me which state dinner you'd love to attend. And yes, you can go back in history if you like. In the meantime, leaving you with some wise words from Julia's favorite diplomat, Paul Child. But how can you possibly find your light when she's such a bright star? That light illuminates us too, and she'll never leave you behind. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.